just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. My name is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. We're here every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets, the economy, and share with you some insights that will hopefully give you some good guidance in terms of making informed decisions or at least asking uh, educated questions. So, (laughs) you know, this past week, well, it was quite all over the place in terms of the market, but really there wasn't a whole lot going on. There were no real um, major events other than what the Fed with their uh, interest rate announcement, but even that was kind of well known. But leave us do the data dump to begin things. Uh, The Dow closed yesterday uh, at 32,899, down 98 points. It had been up as much as a couple hundred. It had been down that many, too, uh, intraday. Uh, Actually, it had been down more than that. But in any case, it ended basically unchanged. The uh, S&P ended the week at 4,123. The NASDAQ at 12,144. The Russell 2000 closed at 1836. Gold settled at 1880 an ounce. Uh, silver at 2238 an ounce. We had crude up to 110.24 a barrel. The 10-year Treasury uh, closed at 3.12 percent. That's the highest it's been in a few years. And the uh, soft white wheat contract ended at $11.12 a bushel. And then just looking at my notes, I noticed that at the end of the year, the 10-year Treasury was 1.5%, and now it's 3.1%. That's a really big move in a very short period of time and has a lot to do with explaining some of the uh, results we've seen in the market since the first of the year. So when do we think this downturn is going to end? I wish I knew. I got no idea. You can never know when the bottom's being made. It only happens after the fact. You know, when the bug showed up, the Fed lowered interest rates right through the floor. And as a result, they effectively took a lot of risk out of the market. And those riskier sectors really took off. As we all know, meme stocks? What's a meme stock? Anyhow, they took off too. And the thinking on Wall Street, and of course in the ever-present social media, was Who cares about things like P.E. ratios when interest rates are free? Just buy any growth name and enjoy the ride. Well, that was not exactly inaccurate uh, because it worked beautifully for a while, but now, no. Uh, With the Fed having raised rates and going to continue to do so, all those formerly hot, can't-lose, riskier stocks are falling apart. Meanwhile, more conservative areas of the market, like the value shares, the low volatility companies, they're holding up pretty well. It does turn out that those P.E. ratios aren't quite as archaic as some would have held. Well, you know, important things for you to understand is that all these rate increases will generally uh, have a negative effect on growth stocks and help the relative performance of those value shares. So just kind of keep that in mind when you're uh, contemplating the future. And oh, by the way, I don't know, for those of you who missed it, we had a couple interesting days for sure this past week, Wednesday and Thursday. Wednesday, Mr. Powell was holding forth about the interest rates, and uh, he had, uh, after he talked and said basically he wasn't going to be raising, at least 
the Federal Reserve Board wasn't going to be raising rates more than by 0.75% uh, each time. Uh, that was deemed as, for whatever reason, good news, and this, the market took off. The Dow was up 900 points. Uh, the S&P had its biggest gain since uh, 2020. The Nasdaq up 3%. And by the way, when you hear this biggest, worst, since whenever, <laughs> That's ju just take it for what it is. It's just, it's just a date. It's just a reference point. Now, on Thursday, the movie changed. It became a horror show. The Dow was down over 1,000 points, or 3.1%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq got beaten all about the head and shoulders. It was down 4.9%. They were the worst single-day drops since 2020. So, you, after having... The best day since 2020 in the S&P, it had the worst day since 2020. Not unusual, by the way. Uh, and uh, the S&P was down 3.5% uh, on Thursday. 80% of the stocks on, Friday, on uh, Thursday were down uh, in the S&P. Now, understand that a lot of this is done through what's called program trading, which is where these stocks, whether having no relation with fundamentals or PEs or anything else, they get put into these what they call baskets, and they're automatically traded by computer instantaneously, buy, sell. And uh, so you're getting these big swings. Now, you can't, you know, think about it. Uh, these stocks don't change in value 12, 15 points in a day for any rational reason it's just trading it's not fundamentals and that's why again you try not to look at this stuff every day it might flatten out the bumps in your brain if you do it's just not a good idea you know it, it and it isn't really clear why the market sold off on thursday you know he, uh, mr powell's press conference as i alluded to earlier wasn't as hawkish as some of the folks thought it was going to be and and the fact looks like they keep raising excuse me raising rates until the economy shows signs it's cooling off, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. So, you know, it, it, these rising rates puts pressure on growth-oriented tech stocks, and so they make these earnings, which are in the future, less attractive to investors now. You know, and I think it's safe to say that uncertainty remains the main driver for what you've been seeing here lately. And after years of complacency and interest in inflation rates, investors and traders alike uh, are in new territory. When it, and that helps partially explain these quick sentiment shifts. And, and so you have to kind of, this is where, <laughs> and you can only do this by practice. You have to learn to put, put that arm's length, you know, keep yourself at arm's length distance from these things. They don't know you own them, I promise. No share is going to jump up. Yeah, hey, Bill owns me. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do real good for him. No, it doesn't work like that. So you want to be able to, you know, stay with quality and, and just don't pay attention to the daily moves. I mean, you see, most big moves up or down happen very close to one another historically. Almost uh, Two and three percent moves almost, you go back, I don't know, at least a hundred years, you're going to find very close correlation between 
when you saw a big move up and a big move down. And it, but don't try to anticipate it. All you'll get is additional uh, in, enlarging of your ulcer. I want to hit, hit on the bonds again just for a short bit. You know, since 1981, we're talking four decades here, interest rates have been falling and bond prices going up. So this created what seemed to many investors, and I, I mean many investors, as an ongoing, even perpetual tailwind for capital gains for fixed income investors. Your total return was great because not only did you earn interest on your bonds, but you pocketed the extra profit as they went up in value, perhaps, you know, traded the bond, sold it at a profit, reinvested, whatever. But it was great. In a few long periods, such as the 20-year period, which ended in March 2020, so going back to March 2000, bonds earned even higher returns than stocks without any of their exciting losses. But let the record reflect. Those glory years are long gone. If you started investing any time after Mr. Reagan was president, you've never experienced losses like this in bonds. And to quantify that, so far this year through the 30th of April, long-term treasury bonds, that's those maturing more than 10 years, have lost more than 18% in principle. Uh, and it's this is the broad bond markets perform worse so far than than in any complete year, you ready for this? Since 1792, except for one, and that was back in 1842 when a depression approached rock bottom. Not exactly a great trend. And one last bit of info, if you own long-term government bonds, you're down nearly 30%. And, and uh, again, according to Brian Taylor, chief economist at Global Financial Data, he said it's also worth noting that adjusted for inflation, there are at least nine past periods that have been worse. So it's not all that bad. Inflation is like kryptonite for bonds. Kryptonite being, you know, the bad stuff for Superman. And uh, because your interest payments are fixed with bonds, uh, and so you can't grow to keep up with the rises in your cost of living. So that means your real returns, which is after tax, after inflation, you, well, you take the rate of return that you're earning, subtract the rate of inflation, subtract tax, that's your real return. So those returns have cratered. And uh, the good news is that the bond market's current five-year inflation forecast, which is just what it's worth, but it's a forecast in any case, is saying that uh, the five-year inflation is going to be 3.2%. Uh, so I think most people, most quote-unquote experts are looking for significantly lower inflation than what we're going through now due to <laughs> what you might call special circumstances. Now, uh, the GDP, uh, first uh, report of the GDP came out this past week. You get three looks at it uh, before, and even then they still can tinker with it a bit. But nonetheless, uh, the pure private sector components consumer spending, investment in non-residential structures and stuff, rose and accelerated from the fourth quarter of last year when the headline GDP was up 6.9%. So these categories, that's 86.7% of U.S. GDP. How did they go up while overall growth contracted? Well, <laughs> if you look through, it's not too hard to figure out. For the fourth quarter growth was 
of, of 2021 was pushed higher by big investment in inventories because a lot of people, you know, see, I'm, I'm not be able to get enough stuff to meet my demand, so on and so forth, so I want to lay them in. And that added more than 5% to the headline growth. Now, our manufacturing sector, U.S., continued to expand in April at a little bit slower pace. Pace, 17 of 18 industries reporting growth. Factory orders, 2.2% up, better than expected. Job openings at an all-time high at 11.5 million. Uh, the U.S. economy added 428,000 jobs in April. Uh, unemployment rate remained at 3.6%. That's the 12th straight month of job growth above 400,000. Now, these strong readings could add to the concerns that the Fed will need to move aggressively to tame inflation. But it's a trade-off. Do you, do you want really lower employment? Not so much. So therein lies the hard part for the Fed, to be able to try and tap dance between yeah, making sure growth doesn't get too silly and also maintaining the uh, efficacy of the uh, labor market. Now, um, the Fed on Wednesday, Mr. Powell made his announcement. He raised short-term rates by a half a percentage point, which was pretty much anticipated. Half a percentage point, also known in the bond business as 50 basis points. And he left the range at uh, for federal funds, that's what they loan money to the banks at, at 0.75 to 1%. Now that jump, the 50 basis, one half of 1%, now we're talking in my mind, kind of small numbers, but it was the largest at any one time since May 2000. So, as you can perhaps deduce, the uh, Fed isn't given to big cranks on the interest rate at any point in time. And uh, they're talking about uh, two more jumps of a half a percent uh, in one in June, one in July, and then it looks as if uh, the, the Fed funds rate will move from 0.75 to 1 to about 2.5 by year end. So Mr. Powell said, and I'm quoting, an individual 75% basis point increase is not something the committee is actually, excuse me, actively considering. I think expectations are that we'll start to see inflation flattening out, unquote. He also added, quote, a broad sense on the committee that uh, additional 50 p basis point increases should be on the table for the next couple of meetings, as we just said. Now, he says, and I hope he's right, he believed the Fed could slow economic growth without causing a jump in unemployment. And that's, then again, he's alluding to the job vacancies and strong household balance sheets. And he said, we, we have a good chance for a soft or soft-ish. <laughs> I didn't know... Fed guys could use words like softish. Uh, landing. So, now, we all know prices are still rising on Main Street. The labor, mar labor market is still hot as a pistol. Housing activity slowing somewhat, but still strong. Consumer spending also slowing, but still very positive. And the effects of this tightening of conditions hasn't really yet been felt much away from Wall Street. That's the part we're going to have to watch for this summer and fall. We don't know if the Fed is overshot until some more time has gone by, but we already know how negatively all the current conditions are being viewed. 
You know, the surveys are ugly, confidence is cratered, attitude adjustment nearly complete. Now, this to me is kind of uh, prototypical of uh, getting close to a bottom when you have all this, uh, uh, you know, wailing and moaning and hair shirt wearing and all that kind of stuff. So where does all this data lead the Fed? Well, inflation's running too hot. It needs to move as rapidly as possible to uh, a, a more restrictive monetary policy by the Fed so they can bring it down. Now, ultimately, that means increasing the risk of a recession. But that recession is very unlikely to materialize this year. And, and investors should expect more job growth, although at a slower pace, perhaps, than what we uh, are seeing now. Now, you know, by having raised the rates, the Fed somewhat changed the math of investing. You can see one part of the market getting generally slammed, while another part's barely been touched. Let me try and give you a little insight of what I'm saying here. With the Fed having raised rates, all those formerly hot, risky, or and or bug-related stocks are falling apart. Peloton yesterday, for example, hit a new all-time low. Uh, Clorox, uh, other companies that... Uh, Netflix, all these companies, you know, the stay-at-home stocks that did so well, they're all being hammered rather heavily. Meanwhile, the more conservative the areas, like the value stocks and low volatility stocks, they're doing pretty well. And, and, and if you want to, just, <laughs> if you really have nothing else to do, check out the S&P value index year-to-date uh, compared with the growth index. You see a pretty good divergence there. The important thing you have to understand is that all Rate increases can punish growth stocks and help the relative performance of these value shares. So just kind of keep that in mind when you're out there um, considering what to do now. You know, this is a, not a bad buying opportunity in my humble opinion because prices are lower. Have you ever noticed how weird that is in the, well, in my opinion, weird that is in the stock market? You see these prices are down. There's a very good companies. They're, no, they're the same companies that were there prior to their prices being adjusted. And people are like, oh, I can't buy those now. I'd have to buy it for $20, $30, $40 a share less than what it was. Now, if you can get your head around that logic, I think you'll see that perhaps you might want to review your thinking and say, well, upon further review, maybe I should consider what this is. But that all goes back to having a strategy that you can hang your head on and have a reason to um, build that portfolio for. Ryan Dietrich, he's a tea leaf reader, that is to say, technical analyst. He says that since World War II, we've had 24 stock market corrections. That's more than 10% or more, according to him. And the average correction has been 14.3%, and that's lasted, let's see, 133 days. And on the other hand, uh, we're already at 117 days, and the market's down 14.2%. In other words, what's happening right now is, in fact, pretty dang normal. Of the last 21 times the market fell more than 10% a year, it closed positive 12 of those times. There's a an uh, entity called the American Association of Individual Investors. Uh, it's typically been made up of folks who belong to investment clubs all over the country, but anybody can belong. But in any case, it's considered uh, what is the quote-unquote public thinking about the markets in general. And um, Merrill Lynch did a recent 
report on that, and it says that their current reading has bears uh, at 59.4%. Now, that's particularly high. Matter of fact, it, and this kind of gives me a, I must say, a bit of a headache. It's worse than the flash crash, worse than the taper tantrum, worse than the 2020 bug crash. But why? I mean, really, why? Why are, why are people bearish? Yep, well, I wish this was still calling. We could go into that in great detail. But nonetheless, when we talk about investments going up and down, we're only talking about the price, okay? Not its value. Just because something goes down in price doesn't mean it's lost value. Uh, it, you know, it, it just makes it cheaper. You know, what if you buy, got a got a, a Mercedes and you said, okay, here's the Mercedes all tricked out, ready to go. And instead of uh, $100,000, it's uh, $50,000 for the exact same vehicle. Well, we're not talking lunch money here in any case, but still, you can see where, hmm, the price changed, but certainly the value didn't. Maybe I better snap up a whole fleet of those dudes. So... <laughs> Do folks like bargains? I've heard that they do, yes. Now, you know, you typically snap one up when you see one, except, as I said earlier, when it comes to stocks. You know, when you see a stock that's marked down, well, a general item that's marked down, you don't consider it inferior, it's just on sale. Like I was saying about the pretend Mercedes. If we find an item for sale at a low price, it doesn't change your your perception of the item. You think you're getting a great deal. And investments are no different. A discounted price in, a, in your portfolio doesn't mean it's lost value. It's simply available at a great price for a limited time. Now, there are exceptions, and you got to do the homework, gosh knows. But uh, for the most part, I think you'd find that to be true. And, and you know, when you get this kind of confusion, uh, it can cause some folks to feel as if they need to move to those quote-unquote safe investments. Because negative headlines, negative events, they've always had an undue influence on people's investment decisions. And now we're in a period where rates on bonds, uh, when you consider inflation and taxes, have moved from their risk-free return status more to return-free risk. And again, that's because the inflation rate is higher than, and tax are higher than what you can actually put in your pocket. And, and... Bond income, therefore, can't totally support increases in your living expenses over time. And in times of uncertainty, the world flies into the U.S. Treasury market. And so that, what they call flight to quality, causes current rates to move even lower because the demand goes up for the, for the bond. You know, fearful headlines can generally trigger negative short-term reactions and may shake your, uh, your confidence in the short term. You see, here's, here's the big challenge forever and always, amen. It's feelings versus thoughts. Feelings versus logic. Those are the things you have to balance out the entire time you're managing your money, if, especially if you're doing it yourself. But uh, again, these, these uh, uh, lack of, uh, if more correctly, uh, negative reactions and lack of confidence, Typically, they wear off and markets start looking at things as they usually do, coldly and rationally. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, well, at this point still, it, the uh, Ukraine thing doesn't seem it's going to be yet a global conflict. And 
interestingly, uh, if you go back to 1925, and that's when they have good data on the S&P. The only time that there that such a conflict called the bear market caused the bear market was a little item called World War II, uh, and I think that probably counted. But as I say, the stock market is heartless. It often goes up in 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 the case of uh, terrible events. Now, I was saying that the market went down before World War II. Well, from the start in 1939 until it ended in 45. It was up 50, 50 percent, more than seven percent a year. Go figure. You know these geopolitical events can feel significant, but you know you can be reminded they often have less of an effect on markets in the long term, and basically can give us buying opportunities if you can deal with the short-term volatility. And as we uh, said earlier, you know volatility is uh, not all that unusual. Because uh, with the average price average each year, uh, from peak to trough in the S&P 500, has been like 14.3%. And let me see if I got a note. Does it say how far back that went? Mm, 42 years. Uh, and yet, when you're looking at uh, uh, the average annual compound return, total return, since uh, 1980, with dividends reinvested, is more than 12%. And that includes all those drops. I think the key to your lifetime success in investing is to act on your specific written strategy. You, when planning for long-term investing, whether you're already retired or still planning, you should include considerations for how much income in today's dollars will you need to live how you wish. You, know, you set that there and then you put an inflator on it each year. So that's how you build that up. Now consider your longevity and don't assume it'll be short. Most folks short themselves on how long they think they're going to be around and that can be confusing. Uh, you don't want your money to expire before you do. Um, and, and, and so what inflation rate should you use? You know, we use 3%, uh, as we mentioned here before, because that's the average annual inflation rate in the country going back to the 20s. Obviously, it goes higher, but obviously it goes lower too. So if you just want a bogey for fact, 3% is a legit number. And then, of course, how much do you wish to leave, if anything, for beneficiaries or charities? So in order for your long-term income to allow for inflation, you know, inflation that we call it the hidden tax, you must include stuff. You know, some people, many people, most people, I think, say stocks are risky. Well, that certainly is uh, needs to be defined more co closely. But short term, that can be true for sure. But in the 75 years from May 46 through February this year, the S&P is up about 225 times. Uh, the dividend on the S&P is up 88 times, while the consumer price inflation index over that entire time was just up 15 times. So the stocks effectively blew the proverbial doors off the inflation rate over time. So, you know, you know, markets can go up and down a lot for no reason. Headline writers are very good at creating entire mountain ranges of anxiety just by how they phrase stuff. You know, it's your perceptions that get blurred as a result. Those use of those uh, highfalutin words for mundane events such as the market going up or down well 
that can negatively affect your decisions. And that's a good reason, in my opinion, you don't trade on headlines. And see, the only, re and I'll say it every day, all the time, the, uh, the only reliable way for you to capture full long-term returns is to ride out these temporary declines. It is not to your benefit to try and figure out which way to jump, especially on a short-term basis. And let's see here. Ah, yes. Um, Bernard Baruch. Bernard Baruch was in the 30s, the, I don't know, Warren Buffett, I guess, of his time. Very, uh, everybody followed what he had to say. Uh, he was on the uh, staff of Mr. Roosevelt, anyhow, smart guy. He said, and I'm quoting, don't try to buy at the bottom and sell at the top. It can't be done, except by liars. <laughs> and maybe your brother-in-law. But far be it for me to throw them in the same pool. The moves make you feel, the market moves, that matters are of the utmost urgency. When, in reality, the urgent need is to just kind of, you know, stay frosty, keep your head, take a longer-term perspective. Uh, ben Graham, who was uh, Mr. Buffett's mentor, has this famous quote, In the short term, markets are voting machines, but in the long run, they're weighing machines. And J.P. Morgan, um, oh, J.P. Morgan Chase, but that's been a while. Anyway, J.P. Morgan, when asked his opinion about what the market would do, he said, the guy was all over it. It will fluctuate. Well said, J.P. I think we're in a secular bull market. We're still in a secular bull market. It, uh, we've had a decade of above average performance, and I think with ultimately more to come. Secular bull markets can have markets like what we're going through within them and still be a bull market. Uh, and just if you're interested, just Google secular bull market. You'll see more detail what I mean. Now, if we finish this year anywhere between, you know, almost flat to down 10% or up, it would, I think, be a good setup for next year. Uh, maybe a bit, a little bit of wishful thinking, but that's how I've been seeing these markets for quite some time. You know, so what are your goals and your timeline? That has to be your starting point, regardless of what you're investing in, because that's second tertiary even to this. If you don't know what you're trying to achieve by putting money in the market, then how do you know how a particular market move might affect you? Now think about it this way. In five years, none of what's going on right now is going to matter. You won't even be able to find this episode on one of those mountain charts. But we don't live in increments of five years. We live today, tomorrow, maybe the next day if you're a long-term guy. And if you've taken nothing off the table, this could hurt. So what's going to happen next? It's probably a lot less complicated than what you think. Because if history's any guide... And I think it always is because human nature never changes. You're going to see more spectacular up days where the sellers just take off and the stocks look like they've seen the worst of it. And then you'll also be seeing more days like Thursday with gut-wrenching plunges, plunges. Everything goes down. Nowhere to hide. No sign of the bottom. Oh, my goodness. And this will continue for a while. At least up until the big up days aren't as extreme and the sell-offs start to lose some of their intensity. And then it just kind of all comes to an end. A lot of damage shall have been done, but a lot of potential opportunity shall have been created. It's called creative destruction. 
where you where you're building things out of the other things that have uh, kind of come down well who's going to win that eh, may sound silly but it's the person who does the least the person who does the most almost always loses you know they're bullish on Tuesday, hopeful on Wednesday, mood changing with every day's headlines, twisting yourself all around with what these goofy guys are telling you. That's how you can take a bad situation and make it a gazillion times worse. I've never seen it work well. Now, including this year's year-to-date drop, the stock market since 1928 has averaged in a gain of 9.8% a year. I will say that I have never seen it actually up 9.8%, but, you know, that's how the numbers crank out. Think of it another way. The market is up roughly three out of every four years. It's about 70-some percent of the time the markets are higher. And there have been no 20-year periods where the U.S. stock market has been down on a nominal basis. You know, you know I keep harping on that because folks need to be reminded. You know, the price that long-term investors have to pay for performance like what we're describing is having to live through it. So if you're willing to pay it in the, long, in the short term, meaning the angst and anguish, 100 years of stock market history say you're going to be rewarded in the long term, but not everybody can, and more importantly, not everybody will. If we go back to 1950, S&P's had a positive annual return 56 of 71 years. That's 79% of the time. But you may have heard, stocks don't go up in a straight line. The no free lunch part of these gains are temporary declines that never feel that way in real time. The feeling in the gut we get when uh, on days like Thursday is the emotional price you pay for the upside. And as I said, that price is too high for many. And it's not just the smartest investors that will endure, but the most patient. World-famous money manager Peter Lynch said, and I'm quoting, in the stock market, the most important organ is the stomach. It's not the brain. So when you start to feel nervous about the market, do two things. Remind yourself about why you're investing in the first place, and then go buy more stocks. See, because on the first point, the money is for your family security, or your personal security, as the case may be, and not one, five, or even ten years from now. I have zero doubt. I mean, you can put me on a 12-volt. I won't change my story. I have zero doubt that earnings will continue to grow and stocks will eventually follow. I got 100 years of data. I mean, that's how it's gone. So I'm not going to do anything to get in the way of my destination regardless of how much pain I have to endure. I know that eventually I'll be rewarded. Now, it, it, so why does the market go up over the long term? Well, I know a lot of people think the Fed controls the stock market or low interest rates and some faceless entity is pulling the strings. Well, good luck with that. In reality, the biggest reason the market goes up over time is because the economy grows and corporations earn more money. Boom. In 1928, the earnings per share for the S&P was $1.11. And uh, the dividend was 78 cents for the S&P 500. But uh, by the end of uh, last year, the uh, earnings were at 197.87 and $60.40 in dividends. So kind of going back to a, a number I gave you earlier, that over the past 94 years, 
Earnings on the market have grown in an annual rate of 6%, dividends up 5%, both of which nicely above the prevailing inflation rate over that entire period of time. So, being an investor in the stock market means you get to take part in these profits and cash flows of corporations. You get to benefit from their innovation, investment, and growth. You know, and in, in, in just in 1982, some of us even remember when that was, the entire stock market was worth $1.2 trillion. The uh, Bubba Gump Fruit Company, also known as Apple, is now by itself worth 2.5 trillion market goes up because businesses get bigger and earn more money and if you are own stocks you get part of that growth you know it goes up long term because it does go down short term you know uh, you get some combination of huge gains followed by bone crushing losses that's just how it goes i'm sorry but if the stock market was easy everybody would become a buy and hold investor in fact, it's not always easy. It's one of the biggest reasons the market goes up over the long term. I'm positive we'll be at new highs eventually. I'm saying that don't expect it to happen 30 days from now. The market we've all grown accustomed to isn't the market we're going to be experiencing going forward. It's going to be a little harder, or at least a little more challenging. But profits have been made many times in much higher interest and inflation environments than what we're in now. Well, have a great week, a great productive week, and, lest I forget, happy Mother's Day to all of those who happen to be one of those, and as well as all the folks who happen to have had one at one time. So, have a great week. Be productive. Hope uh, we'll have something positive and wonderful for you to hear next week. Remember, stay, take the long-term view. Don't pay any attention to these silly headlines. My name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. You've been listening to Money Management, and I thank you very much. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.